My name is John Lorden, and I've been looking into hundreds of unsolved mysteries over the past five years on my YouTube channel, Lorden Arts. And I've been known to bring a respectful, victim-focused approach to the stories that I cover while donating thousands of dollars directly to those cases and the charities that help them. Now, I'm bringing that approach and sensibility, along with some of the biggest mysteries I've ever looked into and some new ones, to a weekly podcast called Seriously Mysterious. From bizarre occurrences to unsolved murders and unexplainable disappearances, everything is fair game on this show as long as it's seriously mysterious. You can find Seriously Mysterious on your favorite podcatchers or by visiting seriouslymysterious.com. Let's look into the mysterious together. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode of DNA ID is sponsored by GEDmatch, the free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, not to mention help catch the bad guys we talk about in every episode. It was 2002. On Friday, February 15th, just before 1 o'clock p.m., a call came into the Oak Ridge North 911 dispatcher. The caller, O'Brien Maine, reported that he was a mechanic at Lube Express and there was some kind of medical emergency at the coastal gas station located at 26914 I-45 North. Officers from the Oak Ridge North PD in Montgomery County, Texas, heard the dispatcher send an EMS unit to the scene for a possible heart attack. Then they heard the dispatcher update the call to a shooting. First responders sped to the coastal station. The gas station doubled as a convenience store, and some of the responding officers, Tony Madison and Richard Curry, were familiar with it and its owner-operator, Subir Chatterjee. When they arrived at the scene and entered the store, they found Subir lying in a pool of blood, EMTs frantically trying to save his life. Subir was lying on the floor of the office area of the gas station. This was located in the northwest corner of the building. What immediately stood out to the officers was that the office was one of those small rooms that's surrounded by bulletproof plexiglass, with slots for customer service and a door that locked from the inside, preventing entry to those not authorized to enter. Yet there Subir lay on his back, on the floor of the bulletproof room, with a visible gunshot wound to the head. He was pronounced dead at the scene. The door to the office appeared to have been kicked in. What had happened here? Let's talk for a minute about our victim. Subir Kumar Chatterjee was born May 1, 1943, in Calcutta, India. At the time of his murder, he was 58 years old. As a young man, Subir immigrated to the U.S. with the help of extended family and lived in Buffalo, New York, before moving to Texas. He was a geophysicist-turned-businessman who was active in his community and had a loving wife and daughter. The shooting actually happened on the day before his daughter Kanika's birthday. Subir's wife, Benani, was so devastated by his death, she was unable to speak to the media about her husband's murder at all. Subir was also close with his niece and nephew, his brother's children, Sumana and Neil Chatterjee. Subir had purchased the coastal station in 1997. Before that, he'd owned a Chevron station in Spring, Texas, also off of I-45. But the Chevron station was forced to close by the I-45 expansion project, and Subir moved on to Oak Ridge North in Montgomery County. He and his family actually lived in Harris County, not far away. 
A little context for where this shooting took place. Oak Ridge North is a tiny city 20 miles north of Houston. It covers just 1.1 square miles, and its population, as of 2020, was just over 3,000 residents. The town's slogan is, What a Hometown Should Be. But it is situated right on the east side of I-45, a major highway that runs from Dallas south to Houston and terminates in Galveston. The coastal station was located on the northbound side of I-45 at the intersection of the North Freeway Access Road and Robinson Road in a very high-traffic commercial area. Unfortunately for the town's small police force, this meant that their pool of suspects was not limited to the town's handful of peaceful middle-class residents, but anyone who might have been passing through on the busy interstate. And indeed, Subir's murder was the first one in Oak Ridge North since 1991. The convenience store and gas station that Subir owned and worked out of shared a facility with the Lube Express, which was on the south side of the building. There were two entrances into the convenience store. The first was through a door located on the south wall of the store, which opened directly into the inside of the Lube Express. The second was an exterior door on the southwest corner of the store that faced west. This was the door that customers used. The office in which Subir was shot was about 10 by 10 feet in size. It was fully enclosed by walls and plexiglass and contained a desk, the cash register, phone, and all the other equipment and items needed to operate the convenience store business. Two slots on the south wall of the booth were where the employee inside the booth conducted transactions with customers. The gas station and store were open daily, opening early in the morning and closing at midnight. Subir was found lying prone on the office floor, his upper torso slightly twisted with his left shoulder on the floor and his right shoulder up against a small office refrigerator. His head was leaning toward the left. A pool of blood was under his head, and a bullet casing was on the floor next to the fridge. Oak Ridge North Detective Lieutenant Kent Hubbard arrived at the scene at 1.05 p.m. He knew Subir and recognized the victim right away. Hubbard, who would become the lead Oak Ridge North investigator on the case, was informed by an ambulance attendant that the man in the booth was deceased, the victim of a gunshot wound to the head. Detective Hubbard took in the scene and noted a few things immediately. 1. The door to the office on the northeast corner of the booth had been kicked open. A distinct footprint stood out on the door to the right of the doorknob. The inside door jamb was splintered apart with a piece of wood strewn three feet inside the office. Inside the office, it was apparent Subir had been shot where he was found. It was a gory scene, with blood sprayed on shelves around the office, the blood pool on the floor under Subir's head, blood on the broken lens of his glasses, and blood on Subir's shoes still on his feet. But some of the blood drops stood out to the seasoned detectives. Perfectly round drops of the bright red viscous substance were dotted around the office. These were not cast-off droplets from the shooting. They were drops that looked like they had dripped from something directly above the floor they had landed on, from someone who was bleeding. Someone who, the detective surmised, based on the position and location of Subir's body relative to the drops, was not Subir. Detective Hubbard noted some other possible things. One, Subir lay on top of a phone cord attached to a phone receiver, which was partially under his back. Perhaps he had been trying to call for help or had been on the phone when he was shot. The cash register was empty of its money tray, which was on top of the office mini-fridge, and all the bill clips were flipped up. Even though a bill or two remained and a $100 bill lay on a shelf next to a computer hard drive, it was clear that someone had quickly emptied the drawer of its cash. Subir had been the victim of a robbery. Texas Department of Public Safety crime scene analysts B. Prince and J. Flores arrived and began processing the scene, working carefully around the body. Ranger Drew Carter, who is in the U.S. Law Enforcement Hall of Fame, led the investigation for the Rangers, as did Ranger Freeman Martin, who is now the assistant director of the DPS. The text collected samples from the blood all around the office, from Subir's shoes and glasses, and from the blood drops that possibly came from Subir's killer. I'm skipping ahead a little bit to the autopsy, which was performed on the 16th. The Harris County Medical Examiner conducting the autopsy on Subir observed that he had been shot twice. Both were through and through shots from right to left. One shot was fired from a mere three to five inches away and struck Subir in the neck. 
It would not have killed him. The second shot was fired from further away, a distance of between 5 and 15 inches, as if the killer was retreating when he fired and hit Subir in the head. It exited three inches above and behind his left ear and was a fatal shot. Ballistics analysis indicated that the weapon used was a thirty-two caliber handgun, possibly a Colt or a Davis. Detective Lieutenant Kent Hubbard, the now-retired investigator for the Oak Ridge North PD who solved this case, told me that thirty-two caliber guns are much less common in homicides than larger caliber weapons and twenty-twos. The investigators at the scene on the day of the murder had assumed Subir was shot only once, since from their vantage point, they only saw one bullet hole and there was one casing near the body. They eventually found the bullet itself, located in the southwest corner of the booth. It apparently struck a cigarette display case and some notepads as it whizzed through the air to where it lay. Now, knowing there were two shots, investigators had to return to the coastal station and process the office again looking for a second casing and bullet. They pored over the place with a fine-tooth comb, but, perplexingly, the second bullet has never been located. The pathologist did not observe any defensive wounds on the victim's hands and arms. This led Detective Hubbard to wonder how the killer had possibly been bleeding. He noted that the gun used was a thirty-two semi-automatic. Perhaps the killer caught his finger in the slide of the gun after it fired its lethal trajectory. Despite no evidence of defensive wounds, the pathologist collected fingernail scrapings from Subir and placed them into evidence. They would be sent to the DPS crime lab for analysis. Detectives' notes indicate that the lack of defensive wounds indicated that there was no struggle and or that Subir was shot by surprise. This would turn out to be incorrect. Today we want to tell you about how you can get involved in solving some of these cases that you've been hearing about on our show. Many of you are probably familiar with GEDmatch. I mention it in pretty much every episode. It's a free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, even if you've tested using different companies. It's also one of the sites used by law enforcement to solve the Golden State Killer case in 2018, and since then has been involved in 500 or more other cases. It is also not used for just violent crimes like murders and sexual assault, but also for identifying John and Jane Doe's, and exonerating innocent people who were put away for the wrong reasons. If you've already done a DNA test with a direct-to-consumer testing company like 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage, or FamilyTreeDNA, it's easy to upload to GEDmatch and help law enforcement with genetic tips and leads. I'm going to walk you through it. First, go to the company website where you have had your DNA testing done and download your profile as a DNA data file. Next, go to GEDmatch and upload the file to GEDmatch for processing. Make sure to choose to opt in for law enforcement searches that cover violent crime and missing persons cases. If you want to focus on being helpful to finding identities for unidentified bodies, you can just opt out, which will exclude your profile from violent crime case searches. Within 24 hours of this upload, you'll have access to a suite of DNA tools, allowing you to delve deeper into your results. Compare your DNA to everyone on the site or to a specific person, or find matches that are related to two different people, plus much more. Some people think that law enforcement gets access to your raw DNA when you upload your profile. This is not true. Law enforcement does not get to see your raw DNA data when you consent to allow your data to be included in those types of searches. They have the same access as any other civilian user of GEDmatch. They can only see your name or GEDmatch alias if you've entered one, email address, and how much shared DNA there is between you and the unknown profile uploaded. GEDmatch is a highly secure site built with consumer security in mind, where users are in control of information they upload and can delete their data whenever they want. By joining the GEDmatch community, you can help see violent criminals brought to justice, missing people located, and unidentified bodies given a name. Join GEDmatch today. Make sure you use gedmatch.com slash DNA ID. That's gedmatch.com slash DNA ID. Okay, back to the investigation at the Coastal Gas Station. Oak Ridge North Police Officer Strait had secured two witnesses who were outside the gas station when he drove up. Brian Maine and Steve J. shed some light on the situation. Steve had driven up to the gas station at 12.40 p.m. 
I'm just going to pause here and say that many of the witnesses in this case are a little off on their times, which complicated things for investigators trying to narrow the timeline in which the shooting occurred. After all, how many times do you recall exactly what time you pulled into a gas station? Anyway, Steve parked, went into the store, and approached the window at the booth where he expected to see Subir. No one was visible inside, which was odd. Steve then noted a white chair was knocked over inside the office, so he stood on his tiptoes and peered past the chair and saw a pair of feet lying on the ground. He couldn't see any more, but he could tell that something was very wrong. He ran into the adjacent Lube Express where Brian, a mechanic, was working on a car. Steve told Brian to help, and they ran back to the office together. Brian called 911 from his cell phone, reporting a medical emergency. In a very important piece of information, police learned that Brian had been the one to kick in the office door. He saw Subir lying on the floor in apparent distress, and the office door was locked when he tried to open it. Kicking in the door was the only way to get in to see if they could help the man inside. They couldn't. Police questioned Brian further. He told them he'd been working on a customer's car for about 90 minutes when Steve ran in yelling that the guy in the booth needed help. Brian had not seen or heard anything unusual, including gunshots. Nor had he observed any cars coming and going from the scene, but then again, he wasn't really looking. Covering all their bases in case Brian was the shooter, police bagged his hands and drove him down to the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office for gunshot residue tests, and his clothing was taken as potential evidence. Although Brian agreed to all this, he must have felt a little bit unappreciated. All he had done was try to help, and now he was embroiled in something far bigger than just a heart attack. The witness who had actually first found Subir, Steve J., had a little more to tell police. When he drove up to the coastal station at 1240, he saw two men leaving. A white car, possibly a Honda, but he couldn't be sure, was parked in front of the gas station. A white male in his 20s was sitting inside the vehicle in the driver's seat. As Steve walked toward the store, he saw a second white male walking to the white car with something tucked under his arm. He got in, and the car drove off at a high rate of speed and went east on Robinson. Steve got a good look at this guy emerging from the store and what he was wearing. He was about six feet tall, 220 pounds, and he had a red birthmark on his face. He was wearing a black jacket and a cabbie-style cap, and he was carrying some kind of green package. Nearly two weeks later, Steve was subjected to hypnosis to enhance his recall of the man he saw. He was able to recall that the driver of the white car was wearing glasses and a white t-shirt. So it appeared that Steve may have witnessed the killer and the getaway car. Police made a note to try to track these two men down. Two employees of the coastal gas station, Cynthia DeWitt and Clefton Green, were not at work that day. Subir was the only one on duty. But another employee of the Lube Express besides Brian Maine was at work. Daniel Desperis was working a shift that day, but had left when police arrived. That never looks good, right? Police pulled him in for an interview. Daniel said he hadn't seen or heard anything, because he was back behind the building washing and detailing cars. It makes sense that he would not have heard gunshots with the hose and vacuum running. He was still out there when Brian came out and told him that Subir was shot. Daniel was in shock and then suddenly realized right around 1 o'clock that he was late for class, so he zipped off, not because he was guilty of anything, but because he didn't want to miss school. When he returned to the station, police questioned him, and, like Brian, he was asked to submit to gunshot residue tests and submit his clothing for analysis. Then, police got a call from an employee at the Southwestern Bell store located just down the street from the gas station. The caller said there were two customers in his store whom he overheard saying they had been at the Coastal Convenience Store right around the time of the shooting. Edwin M. and Ignacio Z. were tracked down and asked to come to the Oak Ridge North Police Station and give statements. Edwin said he and his buddies entered the Coastal store around 12.15 to buy some cold drinks. In the store, a guy appeared to be waiting for someone. He was white, five foot eight or nine, 200 pounds with dark hair. But inside the office booth, Edwin saw a man with Subir. This man was white, late 20s, with strawberry blonde hair, and was six feet tall, maybe 160 or 170 pounds. 
This guy was dressed in brown jeans and a brown short-sleeved shirt. He was standing in the booth counting money with Zubir, who looked nervous. Edwin said it looked like a lot of money. The guy left the booth and walked out of the store. Edwin noticed a white, late-model Oldsmobile Alero with temporary tags sitting outside the store. Edwin and his buddies then left, and the Alero was still parked outside. Edwin's buddy Ignacio, who was in the coastal store at the same time as Edwin, spoke only Spanish and needed a translator to communicate with investigators. He told the same story, but his descriptions of the men he observed were quite different. He said the man in the booth with Subir was a white male with a dark complexion. He was maybe five foot six, with grayish hair, about 31 years old. Ignacio, too, remarked that there was an unusual amount of money on the counter and that Subir appeared to be nervous. He said there was another guy standing outside the booth at the counter, someone who was six feet tall, 175 pounds, with blonde hair, and very neatly dressed. Ignacio also noticed a white car parked outside the store when they left, although he did not take note of the make and model. A witness named Michael H. came forward with some very important information. Michael told detectives that he and his wife, Laura, had been in the convenience store on February 15th, around 12.45 p.m. This was just minutes before the 911 call came in. Michael noted that an Oldsmobile Alero was parked right outside the store. In the store, he saw a white male in his early 20s, over six feet tall and slender, with a red face and light hair. He had just bought some lottery tickets. At Michael's request, this red-faced guy handed Michael a pen. Michael was in the store to buy an attachment for his cell phone, but he couldn't figure out how to get the back of the phone open to see the model number. He tried using the pen, but gave up and handed the phone through the window to Subir. Subir couldn't get it open either and handed Michael's phone to the guy who was in the booth with him. Yes, Michael saw a guy inside the booth with Subir as well. The man was sitting in a chair behind Subir. Because of the proximity in time of this man being inside the office with Subir at the time of the shooting, detectives suspected that this man might be the one who killed him. Because of the proximity in time of this man being inside the office with Subir with the time of the shooting, detectives suspected that this man might be the one who killed him. And Michael was able to describe him. He was approximately five foot eight or five foot ten inches tall and a stocky 180 to 200 pounds. However, Michael noted that the man was seated while he observed him, so he couldn't be certain about his estimates. But he was certain that the man had an olive complexion, had brown hair, and was clean-shaven. He was in his 30s and was well-dressed in a white shirt, tie, and black leather jacket topped off with a newsboy-style cap. Meanwhile, Laura, Michael's wife, was waiting in the car. She saw a guy leave the store and get into a white car with a white male driver and drive away. The guy she saw walk out was about six foot tall, athletically built, with short, light hair. Laura's timeline was about five minutes earlier than her husband's. She said they drove away from the coastal station at 1245. Then there was witness Danny N., an employee at the Goodwill trailer down the street. He came into Coastal to use the bathroom, and any hopes he had of keeping that on the DL went out the window when he became a potential eyewitness in a shooting. When he entered the store between 1230 and 1245, he saw a small white car, which he said was possibly a Pontiac, but was almost certainly an Alero, sitting outside the store. He noticed that it had paper dealer tags with ballpoint pen writing of a date, 2802. The car was unoccupied, Danny thought. No one was in the booth with Subir, but a guy was in the store, a white guy with a red face in his teens or 20s, five foot eight or so, 150 pounds, baseball hat. When Danny finished up in the bathroom and left, the white car was still sitting there. Okay, so as you can hear, all these eyewitness statements are a jumble of contradictory descriptions and confusing accounts. I don't know how the investigators could make heads or tails out of all this. It gave me a headache just trying to write about it. Anyway, at 5.43 p.m. on the day of the shooting, having sifted through all these statements about the two men seen in the station and in the booth, investigators issued a loose description of the men that were wanted in the shooting. A young white male, 6 foot tall, 170 to 180 pounds, short reddish blonde hair. 
The second guy was a white male with olive skin, five foot eight, 180 pounds, neatly dressed. And they were believed to be driving an Oldsmobile Alero with temporary dealer tags dated February 8th, 2002. A forensic sketch artist from the DPS worked with witnesses Edwin and Michael to create composite drawings of the men they had each seen inside the booth with Subir. Upon seeing the sketch of the man her husband saw in the booth, the guy with the cap, Laura H. said she was sure that same guy was in the booth with Subir when she was in the store the previous week. The sketches of the two men were released to the local media within days of the crime. Tip lines were set up, and leads called in and were logged and assigned to investigators to pursue. But very few calls came in. Whoever these guys were, no one seemed to recognize them. Okay, so Subir had at least one guy in his office and another loitering outside, and within minutes he was shot to death. Detectives wanted to talk to these guys, but they were long gone. So they set about figuring out what the men were doing with Subir inside the office. If they could establish the purpose of the meeting, perhaps it could lead to motive and their killer. Detective Hubbard had had some previous interactions with Subir. Subir had on occasion called the police registering complaints about people passing him bad checks. Detective Hubbard knew that Subir was engaging in another type of business out of the gas station. But he was about to learn just how significant this other business was. Hubbard spoke with a witness named Bill. Bill was a very successful gambler who regularly traveled to Vegas and bet on various games. If he won, he would cash in his chips for a check from whatever casino he was at, payable to him, and return to Texas. On his way home, he would stop in and cash out his check at the coastal gas station. Now, you're asking, why would Bill bring a check payable to him to a gas station slash convenience store along I-45? Well, this next part is directly from the probable cause affidavit attached to the arrest warrant in this case. Quote, Affiant, that's Detective Hubbard, learned that Chatterjee was running a large-scale check-cashing business out of the coastal gas station, and that he would allow long-term, high-volume customers to enter the locked portion of the booth-slash-office to conduct business, end quote. Okay, wow. This information suddenly took the suspected motive, robbery, to a whole new level. The gas station slash store wasn't just a highway rest area stopover for drivers along the highway to fuel up and buy some Pringles and a slushie. It was a destination for people who wanted to cash out checks quickly, efficiently, and without the hassle, paperwork, and bureaucracy of a bank. Without any kind of account, with limited paperwork, and while remaining reasonably anonymous, they could endorse their checks over to Subir, and he would hand them a wad of cash in the amount of the check, minus his 1% cut. No strings attached, no questions asked, no banking fees, and no tax worries either. And some of these checks were six figures. So the next question detectives wanted the answer to was, did Subir have a lot of cash on hand for his check cashing business? Oh yes, he did. And in fact, a big pile of cash had arrived that very morning. Investigators looked at the records in Subir's office and observed that he did business with Dunbar Armored Car Company. Dunbar made deliveries to the coastal gas station three times weekly. This from the Houston Chronicle, quote, We went to the Armored Car Company as part of trying to find out how much money was taken, Detective Kent Hubbard said. What we found out shocked us, end quote. Investigators learned the following. Michael D. was a driver for Dunbar who made deliveries to the coastal station, and his most recent delivery had been on the morning of the murder. Dunbar had delivered $190,000 in cash to Subir on the morning of February 15th. The delivery arrived around 10.15 a.m. And on the 11th, a few days earlier, they had delivered an additional $88,000. Detectives were staggered by the numbers they were hearing. Often these small, independent check-cashing businesses do tens of thousands of dollars in business a month, not hundreds of thousands of dollars a week. So where was the money? There was virtually no cash in Subir's office when the investigators processed it, just those few neglected bills lining the bottom of the register drawer. 
Zubir had records in his office of his cash-for-checks transactions. Investigators started with those, all of which they collected. They noted that Zubir's logbook recorded that on the morning of the 15th, after Dunbar delivered the $190,000, he had done $30,000 in business. This meant that he paid out $30,000 in cash to various customers. There should have been $160,000 remaining in his office if his records were accurate. Furthermore, they learned that Subir didn't keep the cash in a safe. This wasn't a fancy operation with extensive security measures. Subir kept the cash in a brown briefcase in his office, which was missing. It did not seem to detectives likely that Subir had collected checks worth $160,000 that he had not recorded. It seemed much more likely that his murder was connected to the disappearance of those funds. Someone killed Subir and walked out with an attaché containing $160,000 in cash. This was beginning to look like a planned heist. It seemed just too much of a coincidence for a two-bit holdup to have lucked into that big of a score. Someone, investigators suspected, knew exactly when to walk into that office and demand that Sabir hand over all his money. And this someone's name was not reflected in the transaction records. There was no record of an appointment. Detectives asking around learned that Subir primarily cashed checks for regular customers. In other words, people he knew. This from the Houston Chronicle, quote, Chatterjee would let people in the booth if he knew them and felt secure, Detective Hubbard said. In that respect, we feel it was someone he knew and trusted, end quote. Bill, the gambler, was one of those, and there were many, many others. It appeared that Subir cashed checks for people he was familiar with, but also people he didn't know as well, people who came in and said, my uncle sent me or whatever. In those cases, Subir would copy their driver's licenses to make sure he knew who they were. But all in all, Subir's records were very hard for Detective Hubbard to decipher. They were half-written in some kind of shorthand, and a lot of jotted notes in the margins or on scraps were uninterpretable by someone who was not Subir. Random phone numbers and names were scrawled in margins with no indication as to what they meant. Although Subir's records did not appear to include the name of the person whom they believed had taken the $160,000, detectives were hopeful that they would have his image on video. After all, how many gas stations, convenience stores, check-cashing businesses in the 2000s don't have surveillance cameras in operation? Video surveillance systems exist for this very purpose— to help protect those in positions vulnerable to criminals such as Subir from burglaries, robberies, holdups, smash and grabs, and so on. A large cash-based operation such as the one Subir was running must have a serious surveillance system. And indeed, there were cameras mounted all over the coastal station. Not a single one of them was hooked up. They were basically dummies installed for deterrence purposes only. The cameras had not captured a single frame of what had gone down that day. I'm so excited to welcome our new sponsor, Magic Mind. I'm now an official Magic Mind ambassador. And the reason I'm so excited about this is because this little elixir really works and has made a big difference for me. Like many people with busy lives, I rely on caffeine to give me a boost in the morning. And I like a little green tea after lunch to get me through the afternoon, a time when I find my energy levels dip. But I'm also someone who, as I get older, can't tolerate too much caffeine. It makes me jittery and messes with my sleep. I've had to cut back. But that's not a problem because since I discovered Magic Mind, I need much less caffeine to stay energized. I keep my Magic Mind shots in the fridge and have one every morning after my regular cup of coffee. And that's it. That's all I need to maintain steady and consistent levels of productivity throughout the day without that dragging feeling I used to get in the afternoons. That's because Magic Mind extends the benefits of caffeine for more long-term release. But that's not all this delicious little shot does for me and hopefully will do for you. Magic Mind is a curated compound of several high-end ingredients like ashwagandha, nootropics, and matcha that together contribute to reduce stress and anxiety, better sleep, consistent energy, and less inflammation throughout the body, among other things. Before sampling it, I ran the ingredients in Magic Mind by my dear friend who's a nutritionist, and she raved about it. So I tried it, and I've received all the benefits I've described, plus I've noticed a decrease in my blood pressure, which is a good thing. I'm making my husband try Magic Mind, and I have sent some to my nutritionist friend as well so she can recommend it to her clients. That's how convinced I am that it works. So where can you get Magic Mind to try it for yourself? 
It will be sent right to your door so you don't have to do a thing. And don't worry, it's not nearly as expensive as you would think considering it took Magic Mind seven years to develop. If you subscribe for regular monthly shipments of Magic Mind, it costs even less. You just need to use my discount code DNA14 to get 40% off your first subscription or 20% off your purchase if you choose not to subscribe. The best part is they have a money-back guarantee, but I know you're going to love it. My 40% off code only lasts 10 days, though, so hurry up, guys. Also, Magic Mind's new 14 Days of Magic program is a fun and exciting way to reap the benefits of the Magic Mind product and contribute to global positivity all at once. Film yourself throughout your 14-day Magic Mind journey and post your video mashup showing the benefits you've gained from using the product using the hashtag 14 Days of Magic. For every 10,000 views the hashtag challenge generates, Magic Mind will donate $10 towards the reforestation of the Amazon rainforest. You can do your own part while enhancing your own productivity, energy, and focus. Don't forget to use the DNA ID promo code DNA14 to obtain your 14-day supply, or even better, subscribe for regular deliveries of Magic Mind. And watch the donations live on Instagram at Magic Mind on November 30th, 2022. Go to www.magicmind.co slash DNA. Again, that's www.magicmind.co slash DNA and enter the code DNA14. Hoping to find something on the phone records, investigators collected the caller ID box and phone from inside Subir's office. From inside the store, Investigators collected the pen that Michael H. had told them the man buying the lottery tickets had handed him, which was still sitting outside the left-hand customer window, as well as the ripped-up lottery tickets the guy had wasted his money on from the trash basket. Detectives set out to try to trace the thirty-two caliber gun that was used to kill Subir. Witnesses told Detective Hubbard that Subir was occasionally armed with a handgun, which he kept in his briefcase. It would make sense for Sabir to be packing, since he was often alone and in possession of large amounts of cash. Also, his having a gun could explain why he didn't feel the need for working surveillance cameras. He often was the one to close the store at night and walk out to his car with his briefcase, which, all indications were, was where he kept his cash. This, of course, begs the question why the robber didn't plan his heist at this time, late at night, when Subir was alone and vulnerable outside the booth, walking to his car with a briefcase stuffed full of bills. This bolstered the theory that perhaps the killer knew when the Dunbar deliveries were scheduled for, and timed his heist for soon thereafter, despite the risks of a daytime hit, hoping to maximize the amount of cash he scored. But there was another possibility. Detectives could not rule out the possibility that Subir had allowed someone he knew into the booth, and there had been some kind of argument, and the angry customer had somehow gotten hold of Subir's gun and killed him with it. Subir's gun has never been found. Detective Hubbard and Ranger Carter subpoenaed the financial records for Woodlands Coastal, Subir's service station and check-cashing business. They also looked into his financial situation as a whole. There were surprises around every corner. This modest-seeming man who owned a basic gas station and cashed some checks for a small fee had deposited millions into the business's bank account in the last year. This directly from the police report, quote, Total deposits from Woodlands Coastal in calendar year 2001 totaled slightly over $31,250,000. Subir deposited all the checks people gave him in exchange for cash into this account. He also wrote out regular large checks on this account, some as high as $123,000. Lots and lots of money was moving in and out of the coastal account on a weekly basis. And Subir did regular weekly business with several different banks, making deposits and withdrawing nearly the same amount soon thereafter in the form of cashier's checks. Detective Hubbard and Ranger Carter finally sought the help of the FBI in trying to figure out what was going on with all this financial wheeling and dealing. But it got even more confusing. They learned that Subir had lots and lots of regular check-cashing customers, but there were also quite a few for whom he extended lines of credit of a sort. I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible to understand. Subir would collect checks made out by customers payable to him, and give them cash in the amount of the check. 
but he would hold on to the checks instead of depositing them. In this way, the customer received cash up front when they needed it, and then when they eventually got the money they were waiting for from a third-party payer, they could come in and redeem their checks in exchange for a very small cut for Subir. Essentially, it was like a cash pawn shop with checks instead of items. Subir seemed to do this simply to help people, preferential customers who needed this sort of bridge loan, people he knew were in a financial bind, or who just needed some ready cash to tide them over. Investigators buckled down in trying to talk to every one of them, at least those they could find in Subir's somewhat haphazard records. There was more. It turned out that Subir owned eight properties in Harris County. He and his family lived in one of the homes, but the other seven were modest rental properties that Subir rented out for the income. All those records and the commercial and residential tenants had to be examined. Further, Subir was on the board of his homeowners association and had some, quote, strong disagreements with two other board members. Those guys had to be checked out as well. Subir was at once a successful business owner, a mini real estate mogul, and a banking entrepreneur, which made inquiries into who might have killed him very, very complicated. One of the regular employees of the coastal station who was trusted by Subir with the ins and outs of his complicated business dealings was a woman named Cynthia. Cynthia gave the names of several men who had a beef with Subir, owed him money for bad checks, were angry that Subir had stopped doing business with them, and so on. Some of these guys loosely fit the description of one of the guys in the Alero. One of the people named by Cynthia was a woman who was diverting checks from her father-in-law's business and cashing them with Subir, perhaps giving the father-in-law motive. Banani and Konica knew of no specific enemies that Sabir had, but Konica, who had on occasion helped out her father by working in the booth at the coastal station, told investigators that virtually every one of the companies or people that her father did business with were in financial trouble. There was a reason they were not going through established banking institutions, and almost any one of them could have had a motive to rob Subir. In other words, there was no one specific suspect, but almost infinite numbers of potential suspects. Let's talk about the sketches compiled from the witness statements on the day of the shooting. They depicted two men seen inside the store and even inside the booth. Subir had been seen counting out money to them, and witnesses said he appeared nervous. The next thing anyone knew, Sabir was dead, and at least 160 grand in cash had seemingly vanished. Investigators put a lot of stock into these sketches and showed them all over the place. But showing the composites to Brian and other employees of the Lube Express yielded no results. They didn't know these guys. Neither did the coastal employees. Investigators showed the sketches to Subir's wife, Banani, and his daughter, Konica. Konica, as I said, was familiar with Subir's business. Viewing the sketches, both women separately provided statements that the composite of the older man with the cap looked like a man they knew named David, who owned an oriental rug store. They said that David was someone Subir knew and trusted, and had done business with for a number of years. Investigators were able to find a handwritten note in Subir's record book with a phone number for a David O, and a reverse 411 told them the number was registered to a man named David with a last name I'm not relaying, but indicates that the person is possibly of Iranian descent. Banani and Konica identified this guy, David's driver's license photo, as the man they knew who was known and trusted by Subir. So now they had information that this guy was a regular customer of Subir's, and he looked just like one of the sketches. Detective Hubbard obtained a search warrant for David's DNA, and when he presented it to David, David still refused to comply. Detective Hubbard had to forcibly cuff him and drive him to the DPS lab where they swabbed him on the spot. I don't know what this guy David was concerned about his DNA revealing, but it revealed that he was not the guy who bled in the booth on the day Subir was killed. It wasn't him. Police showed the witnesses who had helped create the sketches lots of photos trying to identify the men. For example, they showed them the ID photo of Michael D., the Dunbar armored car driver. Nope, he wasn't the guy in the booth. Police also spoke to anyone who had a check in Subir's office in the amount of more than $1,000, of which there were quite a few. The account holders were shown the sketches and asked if they knew these men. They never did. 
Police also had the smart idea to visit all the other check-cashing businesses in the area and showed the composite sketches there. Again, no one recognized them. Once in a while, tips would come in saying that the sketches released to the public resembled someone's cousin or whatever, but it was never the right guy. There were many, many avenues explored in this investigation, and no shortage of names coming across the detectives' desks as they followed up all the leads they dredged up. For example, on the copy machine in Subir's office was a driver's license. It looked as though Subir had neglected to give it back to someone he was doing business with, or he had been interrupted before doing so. This was a guy named Jason. Jason had outstanding warrants out for his arrest in Texas. Investigators had him picked up and arrested and questioned him about the Chatterjee murder. He said that he had indeed cashed a paycheck at the coastal station that morning before grabbing a hot dog and going back to work. His work records show that he was on the job at the time of the shooting and couldn't have been the killer. Okay, so let's talk about the car seen outside the coastal station on the day of the shooting. Several witnesses told police that, parked right outside the store, in fact, right in front of the doorway, was a white Oldsmobile Alero of unknown vintage. Witnesses noticed that it had temporary red dealer tags with the handwritten numerals 2802. It's hard to overstate how much emphasis was put on this Alero. Investigators were convinced that this was the car driven by the killer, which was one of the two men in the sketches of the men in the booth in the store. They went to incredible lengths to track this vehicle down. They contacted all the rental car companies in the area with no luck. They received a list from the Texas Department of Transportation, vehicle title and registration containing all Aleros, both new and used, that were sold in Harris and Montgomery counties between December 1, 2001 and February 15, 2002. There were 430 cars on that list, but the list did not reflect which ones were white. To obtain that information, they had to enter each VIN separately in a software program that provided a color code for that vehicle. It was incredibly painstaking and tedious. The result was a list of about 40 Aleros, which all had to be traced back to their owners and checked out. They started with the ones that had been purchased after January 20th, knowing that the paper tags were good for 20 days, and the handwritten date on the tag seen by witnesses was February 8th. They compared the names of the parties to those transactions with all the names in Subir's records, and there were no matches. What seemed like a great lead had fizzled. The investigators could not locate the Alero, despite their best efforts. Maybe it was borrowed from a friend or family member who had no idea what it had been used for. Maybe it was a test drive vehicle and not newly purchased at all. Maybe the dealer tags were a decoy. No one knew except the killer. Another witness turned up who had seen something. On February 16th, the day after the murder, Detective Hubbard spoke with a Richard R., a homeless person that tended to pass through the area and stop in at the convenience store. And indeed, he had stopped at the coastal on the afternoon of the 15th. The detective's notes indicate that Richard smelled of booze and was a known alcoholic, so I suspect his statement was probably taken with a grain of salt. Anyway, Richard said he was at the coastal station to buy, guess what, beer. Three harried-looking men came out of the store and immediately began looking around. One of them was white with a ball cap and was talking on a cell phone. Another appeared to be of Middle Eastern descent with longer hair. There was no description of the third man. Police were able to figure out that these men Richard witnessed were Steve J. and Brian Maine, who were freaking out after finding Subir dead and calling 911. But detectives could not account for why Richard's story involved three men coming out of the store. They knew of only two, Steve and Brian, who were at the store and found Subir and called 911. But Richard, despite being intoxicated, knew what he was talking about. It wasn't until three weeks after the murder on March 7th that investigators found another guy who had in fact been there that day. Firas Rahim, not his real last name, was a regular who visited Subir at the store three to four times a week. He was one of the many people Subir would invite inside the booth. Viras was at the coastal station on the 15th of February around 1 o'clock p.m. He entered the store at the same time as another guy he didn't know, who turned out to be Steve J. 
Faraz was speaking with his mother in, on his cell phone in Arabic when they both looked into the booth and saw Subir's feet. They went to get Brian May next door at the Lube Express and watched as Brian kicked in the door. Faraz went into the booth with Brian and Steve and observed Subir on the floor with blood all around his head. Faraz gave a statement to police at the scene, but because it was a Montgomery County Sheriff's deputy that he talked to, somehow his witness report did not come to the attention of the Oak Ridge North investigators for those three weeks. They had Faraz look at the composite sketches, but he didn't recognize either of the men, and he hadn't seen anyone driving or running away from the gas station when he arrived there either. Fall is here and class is back in session. It's a busy time for students and faculty, and with a new school year comes new adventures, new experiences, and new goals to achieve. But as much promise and excitement as the fall semester brings, there can also be a dark side to it, one in which the unthinkable can happen. I'm Amy Slashberg. And I'm Megan Sachs. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. As educators and criminologists, we teach, research, write, and podcast about victims, offenders, and the issues that surround our criminal justice system. Amy and I have both worked in the field of criminal justice for 20 years, myself in law enforcement and Amy in the mental health field. In Campus Killings, we'll dive into some of the most shocking and tragic murders to happen on school grounds, and we'll provide our analysis on the cases we cover as both educators and trained criminologists. We'll discuss what went wrong and what could have been done differently to prevent the tragic outcome. Campus Killings is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Campus Killings. Investigators remained focused on the two men that were seen in the booth with Subir, who were thought to have driven away in the Alero, especially after yet another witness told them that one of the guys in the sketch, the one with the cap, was a regular customer whom she had seen in the booth with Subir before. Remember, the police had strong reason to believe that the person who shot Subir was someone that he trusted and allowed to enter the booth with him. Monica M. had been a customer of Subir's for 10 years. She said the guy in the cap was in the booth with Subir just a couple of weeks earlier when she was at the store as well. On the day of the shooting, Monica pulled up to the coastal gas station just as Steve, Brian, and Faras were standing outside waiting for the cops. They told her Subir had been shot. She didn't see any cars pulling away, people fleeing the scene, or anything suspicious at all. There were other indications that the guys in the booth with Subir on the day he died were regulars, A Montgomery County deputy named David Miller reported that he had been at the coastal station a couple of weeks before the shooting. He saw two men whom he said were the same guys in the composite sketches. They had pulled in from the access road at a high rate of speed and parked outside the coastal station. They were driving a white Toyota with a paper tag in the back window. One of the men was six foot tall, 240 pounds with an olive complexion. The other guy was white, five foot nine or so, lean with sandy hair. This man stood watch while the larger man, quote, tried to talk his way into the booth. Subir would not grant him access and the exchange became heated. Miller was suspicious enough of the men that he went out to his patrol car and put on his vest and stuck around to keep an eye on these guys. After a while, they left in a hurry. Another angle that sounded intriguing was a report from a regular customer of Subir's, Larry H., who told police that Subir had told him someone called him claiming to have kidnapped his daughter and wanting him to pay ransom. Subir was trying to get to the bottom of this when Larry was in the store. Subir later told Larry that this turned out to be a hoax and his daughter was fine. But the point is that there were lots and lots of people out there who knew exactly how Subir made money and how much cash he handled on a regular basis. It was just a matter of time before someone desperate did something they could not take back. On April 3rd, there was another twist. A woman named Olivia was doing some gardening in her yard a half mile from the coastal gas station when she unearthed a small caliber pistol that had been tucked under some azalea bushes. Olivia called a neighbor who was familiar with guns, and he came over and told her to take it to the police. It was dirt-encrusted and had been in the spot under the bushes for some time, but it was sent to the DPS lab to see if it could be matched to the bullet casing taken from near Subir's body. Meanwhile, police followed the gun lead as well. Remember, they knew that the gun that killed Subir was a thirty-two, a Colt or a Davis. 
Investigators checked all area pawn shop records to see if someone had unloaded a gun like this, pun intended. Plenty of these guns changed hands via pawn shops, but no customer names aligned with the names in Subir's records. Okay, remember how a little while ago I said that the police discovered a third man named Faraz Rahim, I'm not using his real last name, who was found to be at the crime scene and to have been present when Brian kicked in the booth door to get to Sabir. Well, this part of the story becomes almost Hollywood thriller level improbable. On October 16th, Detective Hubbard was contacted by a U.S. Customs agent named Jim H., working with a DEA agent named Jeff N., The two men worked within the DEA's HIDTA program, which stands for High Intensity Drug Trafficking Areas. The program provides for assistance to state and local law enforcement agencies operating in large drug trafficking regions. The two agents had been working with an informant, and they had learned that there was possibly a hit out on their guy. They needed to locate the informant to warn him of this impending hit. The informant was known to cash checks through Subir at the coastal gas station. The informant's name? Faris Rahim. Remember, the guy who was at the coastal station on the day of the shooting gave his name as Firas Rahim. The informant was Faris Rahim. Confused yet? So were the investigators. They spent a bunch of time trying to figure out if Firas and Faris were the same person. But their driver's license photos showed different addresses and photos, and it turned out they were fraternal twins. Faris, the informant, was suspected to have possibly boarded a plane to Jordan to avoid the hit that was out on him and or to get out of being an informant. Investigators learned that the Rahim family business, which was auto sales, was actually a criminal enterprise selling stolen cars, and the company had issued some bad checks. But there was more. Firas and Farisa's uncle and other brother had been questioned by the FBI in connection with making terrorist threats on the U.S. And furthermore, our Rahim cousin had moved to a suburb of Atlanta, and the Shady Springs, Georgia police were already working a case involving him, a car theft ring he was running. Oak Ridge North investigators decided to try to get a DNA sample from this cousin. He ticked a lot of the boxes. He resembled the older guy in the sketch. He knew Subir. He was Middle Eastern, which at the time, investigators believed the suspect likely was. And he was a criminal operating a car theft ring. Perhaps that was how he had access to an Alero they'd been unable to trace. If they could obtain a sample and conduct a YSTR analysis on it, it would serve to inform the investigators if they were investigating the right family. So the Sandy Springs police had this Rahim cousin come in to give a statement about his suspected criminal enterprise, and they had Detective Hubbard sitting in the lobby as well. They also had CSIs staking out the parking lot in case he spat out gum or a cigarette butt. The target walked in the police station and sat down, and they got him to drink some water from a styrofoam cup, and after he left, Detective Hubbard grabbed the cup jumped on a plane, and took it to DPS in Houston. Well, the DNA ruled him out and ruled out his male family members as well. Then there emerged a potential suspect who, on paper, looked like a slam dunk to be Subir's killer. Dan Bothall, the investigator for the Harris County DA's office, told Detective Hubbard that Subir was a key witness in a felony theft case that was currently pending in Harris County. The defendant was a Edwards. Basically, this guy Edwards had been diverting checks from a business he was working for and cashing them at the coastal gas station through Subir. The business was Choice Furniture, and Edwards's parents had been friends with the owners, Susan and Bill Higgins, for decades. Edwards had gotten into financial hot water, and the Higginses had loaned him $130,000. He wasn't able to pay it back, so they gave him a job as operations manager at the furniture store. So, Edwards took this opportunity to divert funds from Choice Furniture in the form of fraudulent checks made out to himself. The total amount of diverted checks that the Higginses had been able to tally up so far was $109,000. They were pressing charges against Edwards, and had learned that Edwards had been cashing these checks through Subir. 
Susan Higgins, the owner of this furniture store, approached Subir and asked him to confirm that Edwards was cashing these checks with him. Subir did and said that Edwards told him that he was the Higgins's surrogate son and they would do anything for him, including give him all this money. That obviously was not true. So what was this Edwards fool doing with all these ill-gotten gains? Well, he was spending it at strip clubs. On one occasion, he spent $1,400 in one hour. According to his buddies, this was not unusual. And he spent more than $12,000 on a basketball signed by Hakeem Olajuwon. When Susan Higgins was shown the sketch of the man in the cap who was in the booth with Subir right before the shooting, she thought it looked just like Edwards. Susan told the investigators that she had asked Subir if he would help her, and he had agreed to testify against Edwards in court. So, are you getting all this? A guy who strongly resembled the sketch of the guy in the booth had been using Subir to cash illegitimate checks. Subir had learned about the theft and had agreed to not only cut this guy off, but help put him away. Boom. Motive. According to Susan, word on the street was that Edwards was telling people he had the theft charges beat. Well, the only surefire way to do that would be to get rid of the one person who could prove that he was cashing those checks, Subir. And investigators discovered that Edwards worked at Lawrence Marshall Chevrolet in September and October of 2001. In his role as a car salesman, he would have had access to dealer paper tags, just like the ones seen on the Alero. Subir's daughter Konica picked Edward's photo out of a photo array shown to her. She fingered the sketch of the guy in the cap as someone who did a lot of business with her father and who occasionally traveled to South America. Finally, Edward's next court date was scheduled for February 27th. Subir was killed on the 15th. Edwards was starting to look more and more like a prime suspect. I'm not going to try to convey the complexity of the investigation into Edwards and whether or not he had an alibi for the day of the shooting. The long and short of it is that Edwards was sort of working that day, but he had some big gaps in his timeline that weren't really accounted for to investigators' satisfaction. He said he went to work around 10 a.m. His boss at the toll authority was a guy named Travis. Edwards claimed that he and Travis had had lunch around 11.30 at a place called Mom's Kitchen. Lunch ended around noon, he said. Edwards then went to a plumbing supply store where he didn't make a purchase, and then he went home for a bit. Around 2 o'clock, he went to a bar called the Branch Office. Best bar name ever. He stayed at the Branch Office until around 7 p.m. Police checked out his alibi, which was really non-existent. Mom at Mom's Kitchen had no receipt with Edwards or Travis on it for that day. The plumbing supply store had no record of Edwards' visit and had no surveillance cameras. No one saw him anywhere else. So Edwards' time between noonish and 1 o'clock on the day of the shooting was not accounted for at all. His cell phone also showed no activity between 12.21 p.m. and 1.15 p.m. Detective Hubbard and Ranger Drew Carter finally got Edwards to agree to come in for an interview in the presence of his attorney. The meeting took place on March 13th at Texas Ranger Company A offices in Houston. He denied having anything to do with Sabir's murder. Edwards ended up being sentenced to state jail after a felony conviction. Ranger Carter and Detective Hubbard flew up to visit him to obtain a DNA sample. He remained a suspect for a good long time, but eventually the DNA ruled him out. By June 2002, with the investigation in its fourth month, Carter and Hubbard had interviewed more than 200 people. Through dogged detective work, one by one, most of them were eliminated via alibi. The investigative report summarizing each of these potential suspects ends each paragraph in, quote, Therefore, X suspect could not have been at the coastal gas station at the time of the murder. End quote. Investigators pulled out all the stops. They had even looked at every traffic stop in the area on the date of the murder. They had analyzed Subir's records until they were blue in the face. They felt that they were close to solving the case so many times they got whiplash. And every time a lead or suspect failed to pan out, they were demoralized. The one thing they were sure of? Subir knew his killer. A few months into the case, Oak Ridge North Chief of Police Andrew Walters told the courier, quote, They killed him because he knows who they are. This is strictly one of those things where they exchanged a human life for money. End quote. Speaking of money, that was another thing that flummoxed the investigators. Where was the money? 
it was hard to believe that someone could kill Subir in cold blood and make off with that much cash and not tell a single person about it. Over the years, there were tons and tons of additional potential suspects looked at in this incredibly far-reaching and complex investigation. I can't even begin to go into all of them. Detective Hubbard told me they turned up criminals at every turn, but none of them had anything to do with Subir's murder. Okay, let's talk about the DNA. Subir was killed in 2002, so unlike many of the cases I cover in this podcast, DNA analysis was somewhat sophisticated at this time. Texas Department of Public Safety Crime Lab Analyst Andrew McWhorter analyzed all the materials submitted to him from the crime scene. He was able to confirm that the blood droplets on the floor belonged to a male, someone other than Subir Chatterjee. Somehow, the shooter had been bleeding at the scene. We see this sometimes in stabbing cases, right? Or in the Oberholzer and Schnee case when Bobby Joe whacked Alan Phillips in the face. What had happened in the confrontation between Subir and his killer to draw the assailant's blood was unknown. But there was an indication that Subir might have fought back against the gun-wielding robber. The fingernail scrapings taken from Subir at autopsy proved to contain three distinct DNA profiles, only one of which belonged to Sabir himself. And one of the profiles from the nail scrapings matched that of the blood drops. In 2003, the unknown male DNA was entered into CODIS. Of course, the hopes were that someone brazen enough to pull off a robbery and murder in broad daylight in a busy commercial setting had done it before, and his information would be in the system. Nope. Like all the other potential leads in the case, the CODIS search turned up nothing. And follow-up searches over the ensuing years also came up empty. This was Detective Hubbard's first homicide case. When you hear that, your inclination is to think that the case might have gone unsolved for lack of investigator experience. But what Detective Hubbard lacked in experience, he made up for in intelligence, zeal, and tenacity. Even though none of this is funny, we shared a good chuckle over the lengths he went to to see this case through. He blanketed every single one of the state prisons in Texas with the sketches of the men they were seeking. He checked out a series of convenience store shootings of Middle Eastern clerks in Arizona for any parallels. He borrowed a Texas Ranger plane and flew to a prison to see a guy who was the subject of a tip. He staked out the subject of a search warrant in Virginia. He grabbed DNA from an Iranian gangster he connected to the Russian mob. He orchestrated a trash pull from a subject in the DFW area. He grabbed a used cup from the potential suspect near Atlanta. As he likes to say, he climbed into many dumpsters. He told the Chronicle, quote, I've been to restaurants, I've been dumpster diving, I've tried about everything. This is truly a murder mystery, End quote. Well, what he had not tried was forensic genealogy. This is the end of part one of the Subir Chatterjee case. Part two is available right now.